Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends. In Judaism, uh, one of the most egregious sins that anyone can commit is um, what is called Tchikata Ketz. Tchikata Ketz means um, uh, inviting or hurrying the end of times. You know, um, as many of you may know, Jews suffered a catastrophe in the in our homeland in Judea about two thousand years ago, when Judea was a Roman province. In seventy A.D., Jews rebelled against uh, against Rome against Roman occupation, with the disastrous consequence of Jerusalem being sacked and uh, the Second Temple being burned to the ground. And this is, um, um, I don't want to say celebrated, uh, but the anniversary of this event is uh, marked by a fast every year in August, in August on the 9th of the month of Av. Now Jews use lunar calendar, so it varies with respect to, this, to the Gregorian calendars that is used in the West, but it's um, in and around August. And then... Jews rebelled again, again against Rome uh, in 120 A.D. Um, and uh, a couple generations later, in the rebellion known as the Bar Kokhba rebellion, and that was perhaps even more disastrous, because after some early military successes, Rome, of course, crushed uh, the Jewish resistance forces. It took uh, about four years and um, substantially decided to erase between these two uh, rebellions, Rome substantially decided to erase all memory of uh, Jewish presence in Judea. So it renamed Judea uh, <coughs> Syria Palestina. So it kind of combined it with the province that was Syria and renamed the combined province Syria-Palestina, or I guess as the Rome, Romans would pronounce it, Syria-Palestina, and um, uh, rena- kind of renamed Jerusalem uh, Ilia Capitolina, just what, what would, in translation, is just capital city or capital district. And the reason that we have so-called Palestinians today, in other words, those Arabs that live in um, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, the reason they're called Palestinians is because of this Roman uh, kind of psychological operation against the Jews. And the name Palestina came from the ancient Philistines who by the time Romans kind of revived their name were long since gone. But their name, their name remained in the coastal areas of what today is southern Israel around Ashkelon and Ashdod, south of Tel Aviv. So the Romans just kind of uh, resurrected it. But anyway, the 
those rebellions, especially the second one, the Bar Kokhba one, uh, were the height of folly because the Roman Empire was then at the very height of its powers and really uh, nobody and nothing in the entire known world outside of places like China and India, talking about um, the Mediterranean basin. So from uh, Britain, which was then already a, um, a Roman colony and all the way down to what today is, uh, of course, Israel and Egypt and uh, all of Northern Africa, that was all Rome, France, Spain, uh, Greece, Turkey, and so on. So rebelling against such a power was uh, the height of folly and it represented a certain messianic kind of um, uh, attitude. And this messianic attitude is what the rabbis after this, uh, the rabbis who lived um, in, the, in the aftermath of those two, two big rebellions, one of the things that um, they did as they were cobbling together the, the kind of the, 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 the remainder of what it was to be Jewish and, and kind of innovating in terms of making it possible to be Jewish anywhere in the world because what followed these disastrous rebellions was exile and it's not so much that Rome exiled Jews out of uh, Israel or Judea but Jews kind of exiled themselves because they became discriminated against in their own country and the country itself uh, began to deteriorate and there were no economic opportunities and so on so these Jews started going to places like Rome itself, uh, Alexandria in Egypt, Babylon, what today is um, Iraq, uh, and so on. Um, uh, Greece, Turkey, Syria, um, other places in Europe where there were more economic opportunities and so Jews kind of dispersed and did not reestablish themselves politically in any way in Israel until nearly 2,000 years later. So, within this sad story, what the rabbis, uh, the, the leading rabbis of that post-rebellion generation uh, kind of embedded within Judaism, is a very strong resentment um, and apprehension towards any kind of messianic movements. Religious Jews that live today, Haredim, are, are very, very reluctant, not to say completely unwilling, to adopt the attitude that I sometimes call Jesus take the wheel. This idea that you surrender your life to God is very foreign to Judaism. Because God is not expected to do our bidding. No matter how much we pray, and no matter, no matter how much we wish for God to take the wheel and change the course of history um, to support the righteous, let's call it that way, and to punish the wicked, God is not our servant. That's the point. God is not our servant. We may choose to be His servants, but he can never be ours. That's what the rabbis said. And uh, the reason they, that they so, they're so emphatic about it is because 
those rebellions, and especially again the second one, the reason um, the leaders of those rebellions uh, pushed for them to come about, and the reason they had followers and many followers among the native population, the Jewish population in Judea, in Judea is that they basically said God is is with us. How can we lose? God is with us, right? So we are righteous. Romans are wicked. I mean, just look at them. They worship idols, right? They worship their own emperor who is just a human being. They make him into a god. Um, And they oppress us, the righteous people. So how can God not help us? And so others would say, well, look at this. He's not helping us. We We are low and Romans are high. We are powerless and Romans are powerful. We, the worshippers of one of the one true God, are downtrodden and the worshippers of idols, you know, the idolaters, they are flying high. How can that be? Well, Bar Kokhba, the guy who, who uh, started that second rebellion, and a very famous rabbi, Rabbi, rabbi Akiva, uh, who supported him, they basically said, well, God is waiting for us to take action. And once we take action, God will help us. And with that, the Jews took action and it proved to be an utter disaster. So, today, oh, you know, let's let. <laughs> The interesting, uh, what I want to say uh, before I move on to the events that are related, in my opinion, of today, is that is that uh, um, Zionism, for many religious Jews, was a kind of tchikat haketz. It was a kind of messi- messianic, false messianic movement. And um, the thing with that was, because the the rabbis of uh, the late 19th century when the Zionist movement came about, uh, it was a movement by secular Jews, completely by secular Jews. Theodor Herzl was an assimilated Austrian Jew, the guy who came up with the idea, and the people who kind of put it into implementation were Eastern European, what today may be called Russian, but really from Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, those territories, uh, the Baltics, those uh, uh, guys and girls who rejected Judaism as a religion were substantially atheists. They came to Israel as pioneers before it was Israel. They came to the Ottoman uh, province of uh, uh, Palestine in the late uh, 19th century, but more so in the early 20th century. And you know, dried the swamps and uh, conquered malaria and laid the foundation for what today is the state of Israel. Some religious Jews joined in later and some refused to join to this very day. So Israel is a very, at its base, secular undertaking. Zionism is, at its base, a very secular undertaking. And Judaism still rejects very much this idea that God will take the wheel. In other words, no matter how righteous you think you are, 
no matter how righteous you think your cause is, and no matter how evil the opponents of your cause you think are, God has, has no obligation to either believe that you are righteous the same way that you believe, or that your enemies are evil the same way that you think they are, or even if God believes that, he's still under no obligation to take action, and certainly not to take action in under your preferred timetable. Right? So, so that's the problem. That's the problem with many of President Trump's supporters. President Trump's supporters believe that they are righteous and that, you know, the Democrats, the progressive, however you want to call them, are evil. And they believe, therefore, that God is on their side and that God, you see, I see a lot of Twitter, a lot on Twitter. God will, God will win, you know, all of that. Well, that sentiment when taken in the abstract, it's fine. Of course, it's fine. We believe that God is makes moral distinctions and ethical distinctions. And we believe that, often we believe that we are righteous and the other part is, the other side is evil. You know, Jews, most American Jews are liberals. Some of them, and most religious American Jews are not liberal. But some are, and they believe that they are righteous and we, you know, conservatives are evil. What we don't know is what God believes, because we are not him. And so this idea that God will act as our proxy is heretical, is utterly heretical. God, God is not obligated to fight our battles. And I personally even think that it's not okay to pray to God to involve himself in politics and to support President Trump and to you know, hamper President-elect Biden. God has not done it. What we think is right and wrong is great, but let's let God make his own judgment, judgments and let's let God work in his own timetable because he will no matter what we wish. And trying to make God our servant is highly, in my opinion, heretical and irregular and wrong and never ever works. So what you know, Trump supporters were doing since November the 4th they were deluding themselves. And I believe that in many cases they were deluding themselves because of their deep religious faith. In other words, they were, they were uh, many Trump supporters were believing that Trump will somehow stay in the White House for another four years because, not only because Trump himself, and we'll get more into it in the next segment, not because Trump himself uh, suggested it, but also because they believe that God, that Jesus in, in this case, would want it and would make it happen. 
And that part of it, that thought, I mean, you know, you can have this and that uh, idea about what is constitutional, not constitutional, and so on, but the idea that God will involve himself in the American politics of today, the idea that God will be on Trump's side is wrong. More in the next segment. There's a great deal out there that's become very obvious to us. The crime, the destruction of our cities, the defunding the police calls, the tearing down of America's monuments, the corruption. What's not so obvious is where they're getting all the money from to do all of this. I'm here to tell you they're getting the money from you and I because we're not paying attention to where we're spending the money. And this is a real problem. I've become more conscious in my life when I take out my wallet of where that money is going. I want to know what their values are. Are they given to a lot of the Marxist groups? Are they selling out overseas? Or are they supporting American patriotic businesses and people who care about the country? I'm excited to tell you about a new movement in our country, shoptotheright.com. So this is a group of patriots who got together uh, with shared values. They're veteran-owned and operated, and they decided to create a nationwide database and do something about the problem. So you want to go check out all the businesses on there. You can search by category or geography or whatever on there. Go check it out, shoptotheright.com. We all need to start using this as a regular point of sale and a way to do business. And on top of that, if you have a business, you can list it there for free as well. The service is totally free. These guys want to make a difference. Now we all need to make a difference with our dollar. It's time, people. We got to do something about it. As I always say, time to get involved and get loud. This is how you do it right here. ShopToTheRight.com. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So in the last segment, we I talked about how dangerous it is to believe that God will act on your behalf in your timetable. God is not your servant. It's the opposite. What you believe, what you think, God is in is under no obligation to agree with you. Okay? You may think you're righteous and God may think that you're wicked. And guess who is the final arbiter? Give you a hint, it's not us. Also, even if God thinks that indeed you are righteous, he is no, under no obligation to act upon that knowledge. And certainly not in the timetable that you would consider reasonable. In your lifetime, perhaps. For Jews, it took 2,000 years before God seemingly allowed us to come back to our home. And after we went through several genocides, including the last one in the Holocaust. So the idea that God is going to take the wheel to us Jews is a heretical idea. And I don't think that history supports it either. It makes me sad to know or to think how egregiously misled Trump supporters were after the November 3rd election. It was clear, two things were clear to me on November the 4th, on the morning of November the 4th. One was that the election was stolen substantially because of uh, 
um, voting by mail and that there was absolutely nothing that anyone could do about it and that Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. This was absolutely clear to me and to anyone, should have been clear to anyone who, uh, instead of wishful thinking and uh, eschatological end-of-day beliefs and maybe blind faith in President Trump, those types of people believed that something could change. But any kind of uh, clear-eyed human being could understand that that was simply not the case and that Trump lost. It doesn't matter. Politics is a dirty game. There are no umpires, okay? There's a lot of Trump supporters who uh, fervently believe that the American legal system, uh, the various courts, including the Supreme Court, would play the role of umpires and call foul. That's substantially what they believe. That's not their role, and it was clear that they would not do it. It is the role of the political system in America to make sure that elections are held in an equitable manner, and the political system failed. And the guy that failed the most was, of course, President Trump. He failed to secure the federal the elections. And uh, he could have done many things. For example, he could have issued an executive order against voting by mail and let the Democrats in various states then scramble and sue him, sue him rather than him suing them after the election, which was uh, doomed to failure from the get-go. There are plenty of things Trump could have done before the election. He did nothing. And therefore, the election result is justly a loss for Trump. Elections are not only about voting. Elections are about power, about being able to consolidate power, and about being able to play the dirty game of politics. And it has always been dirty. I mean, in America specifically, for example, uh, African Americans were always supposed to be able to vote, right? Not always, but after the end of the Civil War, after emancipation, right? So in 1865 already, in the next election, after 1865, blacks were supposedly allowed to vote in places like Georgia and the Carolinas and Virginia and so on. Did they? I don't think so. Why? Because local jurisdictions that were all white have imposed all kinds of rules and regulations that stopped blacks from voting, essentially. And they even allowed, we all know this, intimidation at polling stations, just like, you know, in 2016 and so on, we saw Black Panthers trying to intimidate white voters in Philadelphia. Well, who did they learn it from? They learned it from a hundred years of whites intimidating blacks in the South at polling stations. Why? Because whites had the power, so they just did it. It was illegal, completely illegal. It was a federal crime even back then. But... Where were the federal agents that were going to interfere with 
white power in the South. They didn't show up until the 1960s, right? And I'm not saying it in, in, in you know, to rile up any kind of uh, racial animus, pro-white, anti-white, pro-black, anti-black. I'm just saying it's a fact. And who knows what the elections in the South would have looked like if blacks, of whom there are many, would have been able to vote between 1860 substantially and 1960. American politics could have looked totally different. But they weren't allowed to vote. So, you know, you can say, well, they should have been. Sure. Were they American citizens who had every right to vote? To vote, Of course they were. Was it a federal crime to stop them from, vo- from voting? Of course it was. And yet, that's what happened. They were stopped from voting, essentially. Right? So, elections are never some sort of pure game of let's count every legal vote. Maybe, you know, in the abstract, we want them to be, but they're not. And they never will be. So Trump failed to assert, to assert his power to make sure that, at the very least, the election was not horribly skewed against him. The election mechanism in the various states, especially swing states, was not skewed against him, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia. Who let Stacey Abrams run roughshod over the Georgia electoral process? Trump did. Trump could have called this Raffsenberger, whatever his name is, the Secretary of State in Georgia, to the White House before the election, figuratively, of course, grabbed him by the lapels, again, figuratively, not promoting any kind of violence, but figuratively, he could grab him by the lapels and said, listen, dude, you'd better take care of that uh, Stacey Abrams running around there because she's making uh, a joke out of you. And you'd better go there and straighten this thing thing out before election day and report back to me here. And by the way, I'm sending so-and-so to be your minder and to report to me on the hour every hour. How you're doing. Trump didn't do all of that. So his loss is literally his loss. Now, I want to go back to something that I consider to be one of the underlying causes of this mass delusion that happened in the past couple months about Trump somehow still staying in office. And uh, this is something that I've also written in my column that's going to be on the America Out Loud um, um, platform this weekend. Um, To me, uh, one of the biggest underlying causes for this delusion, which is not a... Delusions are never a good thing. But one of the biggest underlying causes for it is um, something I call the American optimism. And I think Trump is very much 
uh, a victim of that optimism, and so are his followers. Generally speaking, I think that Trump is very much like like many leaders who are successful in kind of reshaping political movements. Trump is very much a mirror of his supporters. You know, he's a guy who whose mother was an immigrant from Scotland, so he's first-generation immigrant on his mother's side, a second-generation on his father's side who was the son of an immigrant from Germany. So Trump's roots in America are not very deep. They go back to the early 20th century, so about you know 120 years or so. And I think most Americans today are like that. Uh, the majority of Americans have the, their roots in this massive European immigration of the late 19th, early, early 20th century. Poles, Italians, Jews, etc. Germans, British. Um, and, and even more importantly, Trump is from a generation that was born uh, during the Second World War and grew up in the, you know, was a teenager and grew up in the 1950s. Well, that generation, on one hand, couldn't help but idolize the, the, their parents' generation who fought and won two world wars and created in America, the America of the 1950s, an absolute paradise, at least if you were white. You know, America in the 1950s was so incredibly prosperous and free that I don't believe any other um, place in human history could compare with it. So growing up, in the 1950s must have been pretty magical in America, again, if you were white and maybe white Christian, like Trump. And, and so it was hard not to be optimistic about the future. And I'm talking about congenitally optimistic, really optimistic. And I think that generally speaking, America, for, for the first two centuries of its existence from 1770s to the 1970s was a place that warranted, like I said, congenital, generational, ingrained, inherent optimism in its people. It warranted, that optimism was warranted. Why? Because for those two centuries, America beat England twice, once in the war, in the Revolutionary War, again in the War of 1812, maybe didn't quite beat them, but substantially they did. Then, then America beat England in its own game of rapid industrialization and winning the war, you know, gaining trade routes across the globe. That's, that's how England became powerful, is by maintaining this trade network and by rapidly industrializing. Well, America did that better than England. Same thing. 
Then America won the Spanish War and acquired vast territories in what today is the United States. Generally speaking, in those 200 years, America took the nice part of the entire continent, the biggest and the best part of the continent, which is known today as the continental U.S., it bought Alaska from Russia. It didn't lose a single war that, that mattered anyway. Perhaps there were some skirmishes that the U.S. didn't come out on top, but nothing major. So for the first 200 years of its existence, the U.S. never suffered a significant military defeat. And so, you, you know, if you were living in America during that time, I mean, you had every reason, justifiably, to be optimistic. I mean, you were living in, this, in, in a country that did nothing but go up, but become stronger, bigger, more prosperous, more powerful. Right? But this all changed in the 1960s and 70s. American culture broke in the 1960s and 70s. America suffered a humiliating defeat by a much smaller enemy, Vietnam. Right? America, American industry started falling rapidly behind the, indust the industry of its allies. So America helped Germany and Japan to rebuild their its enemies in the Second World War, rebuild their industries, opened its markets to them without duties, and maybe that was good, but what, it, what, what America didn't do is invest in its own industry, in its own workforce. America did not invest sufficiently in mathematics, in what today is called STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics, which is why it started falling behind the Soviet Union in the space race. It, and, which is why, in, for example, the Korean War, which was still in the 50s, but certainly in the Vietnam War, the American Air Force was no match to the Soviet fighter planes and, most important, more importantly and more so, to the, to the Soviet air defenses, surface-to-air missiles. Americans, this is not, uh, you know, pe people don't like to talk about their weaknesses and their defeats. But America suffered major aviation losses in Korea. Both in dogfights with Soviet planes, <coughs> piloted by Soviets, Soviet pilots, and to ground-to-air fire missiles. And the same thing happened in Vietnam. America had to bomb from great altitudes more often than not to avoid uh, being shot down. So America was falling behind, was beginning to fall, to fall behind. America was becoming godless. America divorced itself from, its, from that spring of Judeo-Christian ethics and morality, which sustained it for 200 years. Also, America had become a totally different place. Um, you, could, you could call it perhaps nationally, because what makes a nation? A nation is not made by a piece of paper. 
We'll talk more about that in the next segment. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. Well, AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. Join us, we're in this together, and we consider you part of our family in our crusade to share the news, commentary, and agenda that can lead America back again. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to this final segment of the show, my friends. You know, so I was uh, we're saying in the previous segment that Americans had every reason, and Trump, who is so representative of his voters, have every reason to be optimistic based on the first 200 years of America's existence. But since the 60s and the 70s, 1960s, 1970s, America has been on a downward trajectory. And since then, this optimism was hardly warranted, and yet, so many Americans are continuing to cling to it, and continuing to believe that somehow the Constitution, or somehow, you know, when Americans talk about the Constitution, with my outsider view, I always find it a little bit intriguing, right? Because what is the Constitution? Physically, it's a piece of parchment that is located, you know, in Washington, D.C., under glass, right? Physically, that's what it is. But, you know, you could say, well, that's nonsense. Constitution is blah, blah, blah. Well, I know. Constitution is a political document that sets up, that limits what the government can do in America and sets up how the government in America is constituted, how it comes to be via a system of elections and appointments and so on. But, you know, and that's an ingenious document, but this document does not make a nation. There's never been and never will be a nation on the face of the earth that is centered around a political document. Nations are 
what we would call in engineering a weighted sum of genetics, religion, linguistics, and history. Okay, so if you look at a nation like, I don't know, the French, they have genetic cohesion, you can see it in their faces, outside of the 8% or so Muslims that they have imported recently. They have made a conscious effort in the late 18th century to rid themselves of any kind of uh, Christian Protestants and coalesce around the Catholic Church. And they made another conscious effort around the same time, actually, to eliminate various regional dialects of French, like in Burgundy and Aquitaine and Champagne and so on, and to coalesce around the dialect that was spoken in Ile-de-France, which is the region around Paris. So the French are a nation defined by its genes, by its religion, by its language, also by its geography, and by its history. They have this shared common history of coalescing from this Frankish, substantially Germanic tribes that moved the Celts, the Gauls, the Gauls aside and uh, kind of submerged them and created this Roman-speaking entity called France over more than a thousand years or a thousand years. No, that's more than that, actually, like 1500, 1500 years. You know, if you look at Jews, we have genetic cohesion. We have religious cohesion, which is very important to us. Linguistically, not so much until very recently when most of us came back to Israel. Geographically, not at all, also until recently. Historically, though, very much. But if you look at uh, America, right? Up until, for the first 200 years of its existence, it had those things. It was beginning to have them. It had a rapidly changing geography, but it was still there. Genetically, for the first 200 years of its existence, America was substantially Northern European, British, German, Irish, Scottish. Religiously, it was Christian Protestant. You know, Catholicism was quite frowned upon. And linguistically, it was English. Historically, it had that joint history, its creation myth from, you know, its liberation (coughs) from the British Empire. The Boston Tea Party, Liberty Bell, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, and all of that. So it was a real nation. But then, it kind of aborted itself while still a bit stillborn in the 1960s. You know, in the 1860s, it fought a civil war for its soul vis-a-vis slavery. But in the 1960s, 100 years after that, um, it fought almost like a second civil war, right? Because 
the first civil war failed to completely resolve the the issue around African Americans because there was segregation, there were Jim Crow laws and all of that. And a hundred years later, that kind of came to bite America again, but this time perhaps fatally. Because what happened in 1960s and 1970s was that the gates of immigration opened up once again. The American spirit changed because of second and third generations of the migration that were that was let into America between 1880 and 1920 so the, the uh, lots of catholics jews i'm sorry lots of catholics italian poles um irish jews and so all of that remade america eh, completely and all of a sudden what we see today is that if we apply this test of nationhood to America, it fails. There is no genetic cohesion. There is no religious cohesion. In fact, much of America gave up on religion entirely. The American history is coming under tremendous assault. And out of 100 Americans, 50, 50 are kind of very dubious about its merits. And even what really happened. Right? So all of a sudden America became not quite a nation anymore. And I think lots of Americans are feeling that. And certainly the liberal part of America doesn't want to base its nationhood on religion or ethnic genetic cohesion. They want ethnic and genetic diversity. They want religion to be totally divorced from anything and in fact subdued. <clears throat> so what they did was they, they, they invented this concept that America is, quote-unquote, an idea. And somewhat strikingly and quite sadly, The other half of America, the so-called conservatives, patriots, Trump supporters, Republicans, you, however you want to name them, well, the one thing that they agree with the liberals is that America is an idea. That, an Amer that maybe they don't agree what idea it is, but they agree that it's an idea because what they believe now is that the foundation of the American nation is a political document called the Constitution. But beyond the fact that no nation has ever been founded on a, upon a political document, we also have to keep in mind that the Constitution as a political document has undergone so many changes that it's substantially unrecognizable today. To, what, to its original intent. Huh? And I'm not talking only about the formal changes as, as, as in amendments. I'm talking about, much more importantly, its informal and ad hoc interpretation by the American court system and by the American Supreme Court. I mean, the American Supreme Court evacerated the Constitution more than any other 
eviscerated the Constitution more than any other entity in American public life. The American Supreme Court allowed the creation of aggrieved classes, you know, disabled people, ethnically, ethnical minorities, stuff like that. That was never intended. That's completely anti-constitutional. The Constitution talks only about individual rights of an individual person, not classes. It allowed breach of it allowed the government to interfere in contracts between uh, private entities, for example, in 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 um, things like minimum wage and various other regulations. It took away. It allowed massive transfer of power from the states to the federal government. And then, of course, it allowed abominations like the universal right uh, for gay marriage, abortion, and so on. So how can you base a nation upon an idea that you don't even agree what that idea is? And certainly an idea that has, is changing is fluid. It's like building a house upon, you know, quicksand is what you're talking about here. It's not going to work. So I would say that for the past 60 years, there has been no reason for Americans to be optimistic. And less and less so with the passage of time. There's no reason now for Americans to be optimistic. So, Ameri- you know, as, as, as Americans. And we can see, you know, Trump supporters, those who somehow optimistically believe that he will remain in office, were, obvi- were allowed themselves to be misled, to be delusional. And that's not a good thing. You know, I, I, I'm very grateful to America Out Loud this platform because it allows me to express views that may be difficult for people to hear. Before that, you know, I'm, I'm doing this uh, a little bit more as a side kind of thing. Um, as, you, as some of you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, but I like to express my opinions and some tell me that my opinions have some interest. Before I joined America Out Loud, I was writing columns for a different publication, you know, on the American right. And that particular publication wouldn't allow me to express opinions such as these that sound, oh, I don't know how to describe it, anti-American or down on America or down on President Trump or down on capitalism. And this platform allows it. And I think this is what makes this platform so great because, you know, for the, since, since the election, I, you know, not to kind of pat myself on the back too much, but it was I here who was telling you the truth. I was telling you that President Trump would not remain in the White House. And of course he isn't. Where everybody else on the right was lying to you, <coughs> was deluding you. And what's the point in being deluded? It's very dangerous. This optimism that Americans had for the past 
for the 200 years, the first 200 years of the existence of the American Republic was warranted. Optimism today is not warranted. And because of that, you, my friends, every American, must rethink their approach. You cannot coast because the world is becoming very dangerous and America, if it's ever been exceptional, is no longer so. America, your American passport, your American citizenship, gives you no rights, privileges, or protections anymore. Maybe it did in the past, but not now. So you must take care to protect yourself. And how do you do that? Well, and your children, your family, you know, depending on your age and so on. But if you're still young enough, earn a marketable hard skill. Usually this involves mathematics. If you can get a professional degree, get it. Become a lawyer, a doctor. That is what will give you freedom. If you're not so inclined, there are other things. Maybe you can be an underwater welder. Very much in demand, very highly paid. Maybe you can be a commercial pilot. <clears throat> I was a private one. It's a very rewarding thing to do. It's not, it's not easy. But it's much in demand and it's a hard, certifiable, protected skill. Use this skill to amass wealth, real wealth. And I'm not going to give you any investment advice because I'm horrible at it. And probably is <laughs> even illegal for me to do so. But amass wealth. Wealth and skills. And I'm not talking about amateur skills like you can build a shed in your backyard. I'm talking about skills that require the government to issue you a piece of paper that says, you know, you're a pilot, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, engineer, you know, even electrician, plumber, car mechanic, anything. Anything is better than nothing. If you just have some job in some cubicle with that that you know that is not protected by any kind of certificate, that's no good. If your net worth is negative, that's no good. If you think that your freedom comes from your American passport and your right to vote in some elections, you are exceedingly misguided, dangerously so. Your freedom has not to do with your right to vote. In fact, if you never voted again in, again in your life, it would make zero difference to your ability to be free. If you want to vote, vote, vote it makes no difference. Politics are not important. What's important is your value in the marketplace. That's, that's the world we're living in right now. Call it, Chinese, call it the Chinese world? Fine, so be it. That's how the Chinese are. But let me tell you something. That's also how America was at the time of its founding. In 1776, 
the government didn't give you 600 or 2,000 dollar checks no matter what. Even if there was famine, they didn't give you checks. There was no welfare. You were only as free and as good as your brain and your hands could make you. Right? And that world is coming back. Be prepared. Stay free. See you next time.